1: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Betty. And Betty was in a polyamorous relationship with a controlling narcissist. It's a story of lifestyle boundaries, word salad, and deriving your worth from within. And now before we get to our episode with Betty, I just wanted to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. A big reminder, if you have not left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., etc., please leave us a five-star written review as it helps out our show when it comes to rankings. Now, if you haven't been to our website recently, you should go there. Why? If you want to be part of our show, that's where you actually go to sign up. We have a guest form there at NarcissistApocalypse.com. You fill out that guest form, and away we will go from there. And the quickest way, though, to be part of our show is to also go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. And read a letter to your narcissist and be part of our Letters to Our Narcissist Compilation episode. We have a voicemail recorder on our website. So go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. It's on the right side of the page and there's a button there that's always floating around. It's hard to miss. It says send voicemail. Press that button and record up to, I think, five minutes. You can record up there. But if you need more than five minutes, record up to 10. Just press it a second time press it a third time. Do 15. We are accumulating these letters to have a volume three of our letters to my narcissist episode. So send those voicemails in. And if you want me or my old pal Melissa to read your letter instead, just send it to NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Other things that are going around... On our website, yes, we're back to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. We are offering high-conflict parenting courses, and we have partnered with an online parenting company called Online Parenting. And many of their courses were created by Bill Eddy. And if you have listened to our episode last year with a divorce lawyer named Helen, you'll know that Bill Eddy is an expert in dealing with these high-conflict people in court. And now he's helped create many parenting courses to help you through divorce and to help support your children, too. These courses are the most widely recognized courses by family courts across the country. So if you want to support the show and are looking for guidance, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com slash courses. What else do we have here on my list? Oh, we have a new podcast. Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A is now available for your listening pleasure where we talk to therapists and coaches about narcissistic abuse. And if you're looking for a therapist or a coach like the ones on our Q&A podcast, please do go to abusetherapy.org. And if we don't have someone in your area on our directory, please let us know and we will help find someone for you. Using AbuseTherapy.org helps support the show. But do you know what else helps support the show? Our Patreon. Yes, we started a Patreon. If you want to hear episodes that never made it to air, follow-up episodes with former guests and much, much more, join our Patreon. We'll be releasing new content on there every week. So to help support the show, become a patron of our Patreon at patreon.com slash Narcissist and we also started an Instagram and a YouTube channel and started making fun pop culture, narcissist-based videos, so go check those out on our Instagram or YouTube under Narcissist Apocalypse. This week, uh, on both of them, I made a video called the codependent tree which was based upon the uh, book by shell silverstein the giving tree i had my own little twist some people think it's a little bit uplifting at the end some people think it's sad uh but it's got generally pretty good reviews so go check that out um and that is it everyone it's time for me to get out of my way and your way here is my conversation with betty Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This week with us, we have Betty. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. How are you?
1: I am doing well. And for everyone who is listening, uh, this show, we're going to talk about uh, a different lifestyle. The BDSM lifestyle becomes a big part of this uh, episode. And I know there are a lot of people out there. Who have gone through their narcissistic abuse relationships, and even though it wasn't a BDSM lifestyle, a lot of us have had to, um, you know, be part of a sexual lifestyle that our partners wanted us to be a part. Of and uh, today we 're going to be talking about a consensual uh, lifestyle that uh, you know both people wanted to be a part of, but then there's a different dynamic within that of like when does that world end and you know you know the other world begin of of uh, you know work life and, and 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 how lines can be blurred and going along with things everything can be very confusing so this is going to be a really uh, interesting episode, and i can 't wait to Um, Well, unfortunately, I can't wait to hear uh, uh, Betty's story. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to get out of my way and your way. And Betty, the floor is now yours.
0: Thank you. So I kind of want to start from before the relationship started, just because it is kind of relevant. Um, So I got married very young. I got married at 20 years old. Um, and I was actually divorced by the time I was 23. Um, that's not the narcissist, but it is important because I kind of met the narcissist through my ex-wife um, and kind of through the breakdown of my previous parents. Um, it was no fault of my ex-wife. To kind of just, we just didn't really love each other the correct way, and we went through a lot of um, therapy that just didn't work. Um, but the biggest thing is, I did meet my ex. Jesse through her. Um, once upon a time, she actually was my, ex's, uh, my ex-wife's boss, um, which sounds kind of crappy, but um, she was only her boss for a couple of months, um, and afterwards, they became friends, and Jesse would kind of come over every once in a while to, um, you know, drink with us, a couple of parties that we hosted at our apartment or so, and I didn't really see Jessie again for about a year and a half, um, but I remember her being very... Uh, very confident, very sure of herself. That was really attractive to me. Um, I, my ex-wife was a paramedic as well as my narc, but um, excuse me, they worked together in the paramedic field. um, And when my ex-wife started getting more and more into her career, she started having more overnight um, on the ambulance. So I was alone A lot of nights especially Friday nights, and I started having parties hosting parties for myself just like with some friends to drink because I had developed a bad habit to drink by myself and I learned that that was probably not a good thing to do so um, at one of these particular parties I invited Jessie because I remember her being really fun to drink with so she came that night and we kind of realized that night that we were attracted to each other um, I do want to preface by saying we never, ever did anything. We didn't kiss. We didn't, we didn't do anything before I left my wife. And I also want to say I didn't leave my wife for her. Um, it just kind of happened at the same time. But the reason why I think that's relevant is because Jesse kind of found me in this perfect emotional turmoil that I was when I was realizing I was trying to leave my wife and I was realizing that I was going to be alone and there was a lot of feelings attached to it. And I think because I was so enmeshed in that, it was easier for Jessie to kind of flip in and be like the savior. Um, She got a lot of pride from being the person that someone can lean on. You know, she was the one that lifts everybody up. Um, But I remember she was just so sure of herself and she was so, she had such a powerful presence, but anybody can see it. One of my best friends, I remember them meeting and him just saying, God, she just, She's intoxicating because she is, she's incredibly toxic- intoxicating. Um, she is as close to a man as you can get without the hardware. Um, she's very masculine, very, <clears throat> stands very tall. Um, definitely has the muscles. You know, I remember just being very attracted to like that persona, you know, which I later learned that wasn't really her persona, just the one that she, on. um, um but we've had a very whirlwind romance from the beginning. You know, where our first date was a week after I left my ex-wife. And I, just, I remember it being very almost like kismet. I was like, oh, my God, maybe this was meant to be, you know. And the process of it was very, very fast. You know, she learned I had told her I had never been to a concert before. Um, so in that next month, I went to two, <laughs> you know, she took me to Chicago and we had a wonderful time out there and she would get expensive hotel rooms and we'd go to nice dinners and, you know, we'd do the concerts and, and it would always, it would be people that I wanted to see, you know, and it was, it was so other than what I've experienced before because my ex-wife was very unfeeling, unpassionate person, you know, and I I wasn't used to that kind of life, you know, just spending money and and going out and dressing up really nice. And I felt so, I don't know, I felt seen for the first time in my life. You know, it was super important to me to feel seen because I felt like I had just been sleepwalking for the last four years. And for every day to be different, for every day to be experiencing something different, it was just like I was awake, you know? And that's kind of... What were
1: the biggest qualities um, that you liked being seen for?
0: I, hmm, I like being seen as I'm a very compassionate person. I'm a very um, empathic person. I think for me, like I am very much a codependent. So I tend to, I tend to attach myself to people that are larger than life for me. And I can feel like, who they are as a person and in the beginning i really did see who she was as a person the person that was underneath the bad part but i like to be seen as kind of like that that um caring person and a sexual person and a a passionate person like i like to be seen as that because that's who i feel like i am you know
1: and um, did did she know did she, she notice that right away and honed in on all of those things and did she verbally oh, point all those things out? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, um so it's important actually to point out she was in um a polyromantic relationship at the time that we met. Um she had been with her partner for 6 years at that point and the biggest thing that we bonded on was um when I was leaving my ex-wife she bonded with me over that because our partners seemingly were the same person, you know, they were, excuse me, they were both very unfeeling, both very unsexual. Neither of us, you know, felt seen in our relationships. Neither of us, we were both very um, passionate people. We both felt everything, you know, we'd listen to music and we'd feel it in our chest or we'd um, read poetry and we'd cry, you know, we were both very passionate people. And I know she very much mirrored me at that point, and I can tell that now. But um, I just felt so – like I had never met somebody like me before. You know, I've never been seen as that person who has a high deck drive or that is very passionate about poetry and music and, and um, theater, you know. So that was very important for me to have found.
1: And uh, she was in – or just – I'll use the word – well, the name Jesse. Jesse was yes. in a polyamorous polyamorous relationship, but was the other person really involved in it, or it was really for Jesse's purposes only?
0: Uh, it was absolutely just for Jesse's purposes, okay. and I feel horrible about the way that we entered it because although poly, I completely, 100% respect poly relationships, I think if they're done healthy, they've, they've done beautifully. Um, but the thing with Jessie is she wasn't really in it to be in a poly relationship. She just wanted to be satisfied in any way that she could. Um, and the biggest thing with her, um, ex-partner, she, you know, they have been together for six years and she saw her as, uh, she saw her ex-partner as, you know, lazy and didn't ever want to have sex with her and wasn't interested in the BDSM part and, you know, there's all these faults of hers and, you know, as you do, you play into it. And I thought of her as this, well, she was just like my ex-wife, so she must just be, you know, whatever. And um, so I do feel bad about it now. I have um, since then made amends with this Um, ex-partner. But the way that we entered the poly part of her relationship was completely and 100% wrong. Because in a poly relationship, there are boundaries, there are set boundaries that both partners agree on. Whether it's one person that finds another partner or they both do, um, the biggest thing is boundaries, you know. Um, so there's, like, kind of a set of rules. And the thing with her and her ex-partner was before we had sex, we had to, I had to get a, a STD test. I didn't do that. Um, before we started truly dating, we had to meet. I didn't do that. For, um she had to know when we were going on dates, we didn't do that. So I feel absolutely horrible about the way we entered it. Um, but that, I do want to say, is the wrong way to enter a poly relationship. Families have a lot going on. Um, the first time that she knew about one of our dates was about three months in, and we had already, you know, we were in love and we were already, she was at my house more often than she wasn't, you know, cause she had, at the time we met, Jesse had three jobs um, and her other partner. But in between that, she was still at my apartment, you know, three, four nights a week. So one that's completely imbalanced when it comes to a poly relationship and two, pretty unacceptable. But, again, I was really new to all of it. And I also just, I played right into her hand, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am very ashamed of that part of my story. Because I should have known better. But, I mean, it's hard to not blame yourself, especially in this kind of relationship. Um, but, yeah. So, the first few months were very, we moved very quickly. Um, You know, we were in love. We were together all the time we had a lot of sex i mean we just we were very much in love and um i mean love bombing was was wonderful <laughs> you always uh you always wish that part stays but of course it never does um but after about four months is what kind of when i started seeing the red flags and kind of just dismissing them um like i started off with little things like i remember the first time she got mad at me was, um, she was on her way over. She was coming off of a shift, um, off of a 24 hour shift. And I, I think I was supposed to do the dishes or something. And I just, I didn't, I stayed asleep and I woke up too late or whatever. And, you know, I remember her coming home and being so mad and it was the first time that she had ever been mad directly at me. Um, and she kind of just didn't say anything and she slammed into the kitchen and, you know, did the dishes really loudly and slammed the dishwasher closed and came back in and stayed quiet. And I sat there and I kind of waited it out, you know, and we talked about it and she apologized and she's like, sorry. The, her her reasoning was because her partner at home um, was very messy and didn't do the dishes and didn't clean up after herself that, you know, when she came to my place, um, she just wanted to feel comfortable And, um, you know, in order for her to feel comfortable, it had to be clean. And that was kind of just how it started. It was just like little, it was very small things at first, like very nitpicky. Um, but I remember she, we would talk about, you know, those psychological problems or whatever that she had, like she had control issues and she had anger issues, but I had never experienced them. So I thought maybe, you know, I can just help her with the little parts and she, you know, she would feel like she was getting a hold on them. And it just, it was never really directed at me at the beginning, just in teen tiny doses, you know? And it was just it was very small things like that. Um, very small, um, like, adjustments, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but her life started kind of compounding a lot after that four months. And um, she was feeling a lot of pressure at work, and she was feeling a lot of pressure at home, and she was feeling a lot of pressure... Um, with her friends, she, a lot of things started compounding and that's kind of when the math started slipping. And I, after I broke up with her, I remember thinking I should have left her in May, which was five months. Um, and five months in two big things happened. Um, so the first one was, um, she, up until then, we said that we were in an open relationship. You know, because I mean, she had her partner, and I was still—I mean, I wasn't sleeping with anybody. Um, I was mostly just kind of going out with friends and whatever. If I, you know, kissed somebody, if I made out with somebody, you know, I did. It. You know, because we were we were in an open relationship. Um, and every time that I would tell—I think it happened like four or five times. Um, each time that I would tell her that I had kissed somebody, because we were full disclosure. You know, I I told her I was upfront about it because that's what you do in an open relationship. Um, cause that was our boundary. Um, but every time that I would tell her that, yeah, I kissed somebody at the bar, um, each time, like it'd be pro- progressively more aggressive of a response from her, you know? And it was, um, at first was kind of backhanded, um, like on her social media, she'd say something I knew it was about me, you know, it's like little things like that. And I would bring it up and she'd be like, well, you know, you should have known better. It's like, you're cheating. I was like, No. I'm not cheating because this is our boundary. This is what we have agreed on. You know, these are our agreements. And I stayed really firm with it because I was, and I I told her after the second or third time, you know, I was like, well, listen, if you don't like when I exercise my rights in our relationship, change the boundary, you know, because I wanted, at that point, I wanted to be monogamous because I realized I have a little bit too much jealousy for an open relationship and so does she. And she would always say, well, that's not fair. You're free. You know, you're this. But I would be like, well, I'm not really because every time that I do it, it's an attack on me because in the beginning, I was very self-aware, you know, before, before everything shifted, I was very aware of, you know, what was right and what was wrong that she was saying or doing. And I would explain it. She'd blow up and then she'd come back, apologize and change behavior. So I was like, all right, this is how the relationship works. Um, but that fifth month in May, one of the biggest things was i I did end up kissing somebody else. I don't know if someone at a bar um literally just kissed them. Um, and she freaked out, <laughs> like completely freaked out on me, and she was like, "Well, I've had the chance to do something before and and you didn't and I didn't. you know i I held my composure. I didn't do something that I could have done to hurt you." So the fact that you're doing it shows that, like, shows that you don't respect me or that you don't really love me. And I was like, well, that's not true. You know, it was just, it was very, it was just kind of one-sided. Like, it was just, it was impossible to get my head around. And so that last time that it happened, she was like, well, I guess I'm just going to go out and sleep with everything that moves. And I'm like, well, that would be your right within this relationship. You know, like, that's what the boundary is. If you want to change it, then change it. Because I'm all for being monogamous, you know. But if you can't handle it, you can't handle it. And she just freaked out. And so the next couple of days, um, she was like, well, you have to tell me um, where you're going before you go. And tell me when you get there. Like, text her. Even if she wasn't at the house. <clears throat> and I remember the next day, she was still really mad at me. And um, I, my stepdad called me to pick him up and drop him off back at home to pick him up from work, excuse me, and drop him off at home. And, you know, it was a half an hour there, half an hour to his house, and then half an hour back to my house. And I decided I didn't need to tell her where I was going, you know, but um, she called at one point, and she's like, where are you? And I said, well, I'm in the car. I'm about to go pick up my stepdad, which was a lie because I was already there. But I kind of, I, you know, Backtrack to kind of make up for the fact that I didn't say anything. And she's like, well, tell me when you, you didn't tell me when you left. And I was like, I'm sorry, you know, I'm leaving right now, you know, and I, I set alarms so that at each half hour I could text her. Oh, Hey, I'm here. You know, or Oh, Hey, I made it there so that they would line up with where I was going. And I remember thinking, well, this is kind of screwed up, but you know, she's mad. I understand whatever. So each half hour, you know, when I went to, when I actually had my stepdad and I was at his house, I texted that I had just picked him up or when I was leaving his house, I said I had just got his, you know, so it was things like that. And it was just, it was a really tense situation. Um, and I remember my mom being like, you know, that's not quite right. <laughs> I'm like, I know, but you know, it's just, just how she is. You know, I just brushed it off.
1: So you're being heavily kind of controlled by uh, these actions. You're, you're doing these. It's like you have a parole officer. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and when it comes to her making, you know, you're in this polyamorous relationship. You are. You make out with people here and there. She's making you feel guilty. I'm in my mind while listening. I'm assuming that she's probably doing this with other people, but she's not saying anything. Am I correct?
0: I think, I think so. She never came clean about it at that point, but I feel like she probably was.
1: Yeah. Like, uh, it just, in my mind, it's like, there's just like a, it's a, you know, she's allowed to, you're not allowed to, but she might not, I guess I'm jumping to conclusions, but she's probably not saying anything so she can still grill you about it.
0: It's a very wishy-washy situation in the beginning. I couldn't tell you if she was or wasn't because she was spending a lot of time with me, um, but I wouldn't put it past her.
1: Okay, okay. I apologize to everyone for stepping in there. I was just really (laughs) no, (laughs) You're fine.
0: Um, But so that was one of the first big things that I kind of just wrote off. Um, The second one was actually a week later. She, for that whole week, she was kind of very, she was very, you know, icy towards me. She didn't really say much. She was very short with her responses, and um, she wasn't really at the house very often. And that weekend, we were supposed to spend the whole weekend together, and I was kind of worried because I remember, you know, she was so upset with me, how was the weekend going to go? And that Friday, she called because she was with friends, um, and she was coming to my house from there. And she called me that day and I remember her being in such good spirits and I was like, Oh my God, like I think we might have a good time. You know, she was in a good mood. She had um had a great time with her friends, you know, and she was coming over and we we're gonna have the weekend. And she sounded um so happy about it, you know. So I remember thinking, All right, like this is gonna be great and that night, you know, I was waiting for her to come over. She was only thirty five minutes away. Um, but After two hours, she still wasn't there. Um, And, you know, I called her friends, and they're like, yeah, she left at that time. We found out that night that she ended up getting arrested for a DUI, which actually ended up being a a crap DUI. She really wasn't drunk, and she really wasn't on anything. Um, But she is brown in a very small southern Illinois town, and it was kind of act first, think later.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, We ended up getting it thrown out because it was absolutely inaccurate um but either way that just kind of added to her pile of everything's horrible and after that night she i think she felt like she lost a lot of control from the DUI and um i realized that she was exerting that control on me more so that weekend um that weekend she was for the first time in our relationship so extremely controlling she'd have you know little things like with the dishes or with you know little things but that weekend it was so present and I remember so clearly pretty much the whole weekend um because that next day we went over to a friend's house um <clears throat> just to hang out for a little bit and I remember nothing I did was right you know the things that I said were corrected the things that I did were corrected you know I I don't know, maybe I had one glass too much or I wasn't sitting the proper way or maybe you shouldn't say that in front of my friends. Just little things like that. And it was just pretty constant. And I remember looking at my at our friends and being like, you see this, right? And it was just, I felt like I was so, like, invisible. And the next day, we had another, we had a party at our house um, with a couple, with those friends and a couple of more. And I remember again like it was just continuing on everything i did was wrong and at one point like the the air conditioning wasn't working right and she like you know yelled down the hall well did you pay the bill and like they were watching the tv so clearly i paid the bill at the end of that night like i was drunk and brave <laughs> and after everybody was asleep we kind of just we got into it and i just remember yelling like i'm not going to sit here and be corrected all the time you know i deserve better than that you know i was standing up for myself for the fact that The last two days were just basically a beating on me, you know. And up until that point, I had not experienced that, and I knew that I I didn't deserve that. And you know, we we were like, I mean, screaming at the top of our lungs.
1: So, in in a a way you know for the previous two days you're being uh nitpicked your value is kind of being put down like i guess in the sense of like when someone says like did you pay the bills in front of some in uh, in front of other people you know you're being yeah. you're being put down as if you're not responsible if you're you know you're not um you know you're not uh taking care of your life and that maybe your life might be a mess in certain ways and these little things are happening to you correct Absolutely. Okay. Just to clarify for everyone that that all these things are going on and you're you're just on the receiving end. And as soon as you step up to the plate to join in, boom, it's not accepted and just not not accepted. You're probably being painted to her friends in a light that's just not true.
0: Absolutely. And and I did have one of the friends kind of come up to me because they were originally her friends um that we hung out with. And I did I do remember talking to one of them and her being like, "Yeah, no, I see what's happening, you know, but she is under a lot of pressure. She is you know kind of going through that DUI thing and you know how she is with her other partner and so she under she saw what was happening, but she also explained it the way the same way that I did, you know. And it was it was both affirming and denying of how I was feeling. Um but in the beginning I and I, I kind of went back over text before I deleted them after the breakup. And in the first half of our relationship, because we were together for a year, 364 days. Um, but in the first half of our relationship, I did stand up for myself um, when I felt like it really warranted it. You know, I, I would say something like, oh, hey, you know, maybe that's not right. You know, I think that's one of those negative behaviors that you have. Or, like I was not constantly vocal but when I felt that something had gotten out of hand, I would say something. And I think that that weekend was probably the last time I really truly did that. Um, when I exploded the end of that last night, I just I just went off, you know. And, and after that, I started, well, after that she switched tactics. But I remember that day after that big blow up that morning, um, she woke me up kissing my entire body, you know, apologizing and then saying, you know what, why don't we try being exclusive? So in order to kind of dismiss all of the stuff that she knew she was doing to me, she gave me something that I wanted, which was to be exclusive other than her other partner because up until that point, we were allowed to, you know, mess around or see other people. Um, But with this new arrangement, it would be just me and her and her and her other partner because the other partner preceded me and I didn't feel I had the right to say anything about that. And she stopped being as controlling and as nitpicky, and she seemed like she was back to normal. And um, for the next couple of months, we kind of went, there was, you know, highs and lows, pretty dramatic highs and lows. Um, But I had gotten the verbal agreement of what I wanted, so I felt I didn't have as much room to complain about some of the smaller things because I got what I wanted. You know, and so within those next couple of months, is kind of when we started getting into um, the BDSM and kink community, which she was already kind of established in, um, but she was still kind of just dipping her toes in before me. And <clears throat> there's a retreat uh, two times a year that she started going to, and she decided to bring me, which was a really big deal. You know, it's a four-day retreat um, in a private campground, and there's a lot of like-minded people, and it it very truly – the community. And I remember when I did go, I loved that part of it, that everybody was there for, you know, with the same purpose of sorts. And it was a very accepting place. It was a very, um, it's very heavy on consent. There were people that were in charge of making sure that there was consent, um, with any kind of scene that they were doing. Um, the, it was fantastic body positivity. Um, clothes were optional. Um, it was just, it was a wonderful, Kind of retreat, you know. And yes, there was um, things of sexual nature, of course. But just like the overall community, I I loved that part. And there were classes, like um like classes on little aspects within the community. They there was a class on the psychology of BDSM. Actually, um, there was a class on say breath play or on rope and stuff like that. And it was very informative. Um, and all of these, each of these classes were taught by people that either had some kind of degree um, that was relevant or had a certain amount of years experience or, you know, they were, they were um, credible, if that makes sense. So it was a wonderful, wonderful place to go. Um, And I would absolutely love to do it again if if I didn't, wouldn't see my ex there, but um, either way, we, we started getting into the community more. Um, And before that retreat, we actually, for the, I would say like two weeks beforehand, we were were fighting a lot, a lot, a lot um, about little things. And she realized that I was never going to be what's referred to as a 24-7 submissive, which is somebody that is a complete submissive, both, in the bedroom, and out. So this person would be, and it would be agreed upon what the actual parameters were, but a 24-7 sub would be essentially a submissive 1950s kind of style person all the time. And I was very clear on the fact that I was never going to do that. And um, she said, well, that's the impression that you gave. And I said, I never gave that impression to you. I was never going to do that. And we had this argument a couple of times before we went to the retreat. And within those arguments, she realized that I wasn't going to be this person that she built me up in her head to be, which was eventually going to be a 24-7 submissive. And I remember telling her that I lost every sense of my identity in my marriage that I had had. I lost everything about me that made me who I was. And I said, I'm never going to do that again. She would make sure that I knew, Oh no, you're not going to lose yourself. You're not going to lose yourself. But it's like, how can you not? Um, so within those arguments, I think she realized that she had to switch tactics, which is kind of when that happened, when that switch kind of went off in her brain. Um, and that's kind of when the gaslighting got even worse. And that was, the biggest thing with the gaslighting, it started slowly, but at that point, looking back, I can see how it changed. And the thing that she did, and I, I called her on it a couple of times throughout the relationship, but she always denied it. But what she would do is we'd start an, um, a discussion or an argument on one, th- one t- topic. And I would be, you know, arguing my side of that topic, and then she would switch the topic. And she, instead of talking about maybe what she had done wrong, she'd switch it to something else that had happened, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And then she'd to something that I did, or she'd to, and she'd switch it three or four times within that argument to where by the end of it, I didn't even know what I was arguing for anymore. And I, by the end, I was just so completely confused as to what my original point was that I, it must've just been irrelevant at that point. And she would do that often. Every time we'd argue, it would be like that. And I would just, I just remember being so confused all the time. Like, I remember I started questioning my own thoughts because I was like, well, is that actually true or is that just something that I thought? And that's kind of when the gaslighting really hit full force. Um, and she also, like, she would, she would switch her point of view a lot. Like, say she would be for one situation. Oh, what an example? Um, I couldn't think of one. But say she would be on one side of the argument, but then by the end, she'd be on the other side and basically being like, see, I agree with you, so I don't know why you're arguing in the first place. So it was just little things like that, and that was constant. So we argued a lot. So when, she, when we went, she did
1: those arguments where she would... Um agree with you at the end, she was just doing it to argue- uh-huh. she was just doing it to argue.
0: she was doing it
1: <coughs> she wasn't trying to get spe- like th- in those cases she wasn't trying to get anything specific. she was just literally doing it to argue with you and just create confusion.
0: Yes, I think for that purpose it was to it was kind of to confuse me into thinking that. I didn't understand what she was saying. And, like I had and, and then to, and then to
1: reinforce said. at the end, see, I do agree with you. Is that kind of what, uh, like, I kind of like, I am listening to you. I, I am agreeing with you. Is that kind of what was going on? Absolutely. Okay.
0: After after arguing for the last hour, she would basically be like, no, I agreed with you the whole time. You just heard something different. Mm-hmm it was it was extremely
1: convoluted, so n- now um. that you 're going through like all of these arguments and these gaslight gaslighting situations, where are you mentally uh, uh, with all of this like are you comfortable in the relationship? Are you questioning things anymore? Are you tired? Um, like what? what at point, and, and at that point is like yeah. she's starting to get more of what she wants because you're tired. If that's happening,
0: she she absolutely. So the biggest thing during that point that was right before we went to well, that started right before we went to the retreat. Um, which I think was a tactic so that I would be confused so that she could get what she wanted. So through that confusion, she could then create a pocket for her to do what she wanted. Um, But for me, I was still pretty clear. I was starting to get fired and I was starting to get worn down, but I was still pretty clear. Um, And I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm going to go on the retreat because I don't know if we can do this together. Like, I don't know if this relationship is going to work, you know, because I'm clearly not what she wanted. I'm clearly not what she envisioned or, you know, for us. But also I was just so angry, you know, like I would be like, I don't know how you got, say, this argument from what I just said, but that was not what I said. And I just remember being so tired. And I didn't know if I was going to go on the retreat until two days before. And we went to our retreat. And it was actually a wonderful time that we had. And the reason we fought on the way home was because while we were at the retreat, um, two days, no, the night before we left because we left about noon the next day, the night before we left, there's this huge bonfire where everybody goes to and you can burn things. And it's a very, um, freeing experience. And at the burn, she was down at the fire doing her thing. And I was sitting on the blanket and talking to one of the friends I had made there. Um, it was this guy and she was coming back from the fire you know, to coming towards us. And I told this, this gentleman, I said, hey, you know, that's your seat. Why don't you stand up um, and kind of show a sign of respect? Because that's a really big thing in the community is respect for, you know, for the Don. And I told him, you know, because I wanted to show that he had respect and that I had respect. It was what she wanted, you know. I wanted to show that we were doing what she wanted. And, you know, he stood up as a sign of respect. You know, they nodded. He he went off. And, you know, Jesse was very, you know, had her chest puffed out and was very, very proud of that. And I was like, all right, I did it right. It was a, good, a good thing. The next morning, you know, we were about to leave, and I made the stupid mistake of telling her that I had told him to show respect because I wanted to show her that I understood the dynamic and that I understood what was expected, you know, in, in that environment. And she got so mad at me because I shouldn't have had to tell him he should have done it on his own. And why would you tell him that that's not your place? And at first I was like, no, I think that, you know, that should have been fine. I did what I was, what I should have done, you know, but by the end of that car ride home, I was convinced that I did the wrong thing and I was convinced that it was absolutely not the thing I should have done. And how could I dare, you know, and that's kind of that. I remember, <clears throat> excuse me. I remember just being so sure at that point that I was in the wrong. And that's kind of when I started believing it. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: Mm. So you're starting so. to believe these kernels of truth within um, the lies that are being told to you.
0: Absolutely. And then it kind of just went from there. You know, after that, um, the micromanaging got worse. And it was little things that compounded. You know, I was told how to brush my teeth, how often to brush my teeth, um, the correct way to wash my hair, um, what I should and shouldn't wear. And it was all very small things that were littered throughout, but then by the end I was doing them on my own because I had been told so many times. So she didn't have to tell me, so it wasn't as present. But I was still starting to do all of these things just to keep the peace. And I I don't know, and I remember thinking about it every once in a while, but she did keep me very confused. Those next few months I was just kind of like, well, this is just how it is, you know, and she made it so that she was like the, she knew what was best. Because, you know, I, I wasn't raised, um, I wasn't taught proper dental hygiene, and I wasn't taught the right way to clean. And I, I came from a very poor family. And, and the way that she presented it, you know, she did know best. You know, so I guess, yeah, that is the right way to brush your teeth. You know, this is how often I have to brush my teeth. Or, you know, maybe I should do the dishes this often. It was just it was little things like that that is compounded and made me believe that no, I really did kind of come from <clears throat> not the greatest upbringing and and she is just trying to help, and you know, I'm just trying to keep her comfortable, you know,
1: yeah, she's using these kernels of truth that she knows um, to control you, and your life. In the BDSM community and the life that you didn't want to lead, which was being a 1950s style 24-7 sub has now bled over the edges into the reality of your everyday life. Exactly. Have you, did you notice and- that at the <clears throat> time that that is what has happened or are you just at this point uh, a walking in a state of uh, like a, a fog of fear, obligation and guilt?
0: it kind of went back and forth. Um, I was aware of it, but I wasn't aware that it become a, that I was starting to become a 24 seven, but I was aware of the fact that she was becoming more controlling and I would kind of, I would, I would challenge that everyone, excuse me, every once in a while. Um, but it didn't really come to fruition. You know, I would just apologize and back off, you know? And, um, I remember, like, that point of time, it was very, it was a lot of, it was kind of sleepwalking, almost. Um, She was just, but the thing is, is it wasn't all bad, which is, in this kind of relationship, it's not, you know. And I remember when there were highs, it was just incredibly high highs, you know. And we still had regular sex, which for me was a big deal, because in my marriage, I didn't have any. Um, So that was also another way that kind of kept me quiet, I think, because I was getting what I I thought I wanted, you know, so in order for me, so for me to be getting what I wanted, I had to at least give her some of what she wanted, you know, and it was kind of a, it was a back and forth a lot. I would challenge it. I would get kind of shot down. I would get told why that wasn't correctly or why that wasn't correct. And then you know, go back to being, well, okay, whatever. I'll just do it to keep the peace. Um, The biggest, probably the biggest turning point then was a couple of months after that. So the the retreat is two times a year. And I remember thinking that I was going to have her go to the other retreat on her own. You know, she could satisfy some of the things that she didn't feel she was getting with me. You know she can sow her wild oats. You know, go go crazy, and then come back to me. And within that time frame, her other partner also left. Um, She ended up leaving in the middle of the night um, um, on her birthday, and she Jesse was at my place, which was now our place because she was then paying half my rent. Um, but her partner left about six months, uh, about seven months into our relationship. And she had left this wonderful letter outlining how abusive she was. And I didn't get it at the time. I was like, no, you're not abusive. You're just, you know, you're just this. And she really, she broke down at it for a couple of weeks. She neared suicidal. She was very anxious and very depressed. And I remember just like taking care of her, but I couldn't take care of her properly. You know, whatever I did wasn't, wasn't the way she needed to be comforted. You know, she wouldn't tell me how to comfort her, but she just, she would shoot me down and tell me that I just didn't do it correctly. I couldn't do it correctly. And in that time she started pushing again for Polly. And I was like, but we agreed not to be, you know, we agreed. And now that your other partner has gone, now it can be just us. And, uh, Pushed for Polly again, and I told her I can't do that. And we fought for well, we went we didn't really fight, 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 but we we went back and forth on it for another month or so. And the week before she left for the retreat um, on her own was probably my the biggest moment of our whole relationship because she finally agreed to it. We were laying in bed. And we've been talking about it. I think I was crying about something, and she was crying, and it was very emotional. And she's like, well, what exactly is it that you want? And I said, well, what I want is at retreat, we can do whatever we want. You know, we have free reign, and then maybe we do a couple kink events a year, you know, that are, you know, talked about and agreed upon ahead of time. And other than that, I wanted to be just us. And we were talking about it, and she said, you know what? Let's do it, you know. And I remember being like, "Oh my God! Like this is it? We cracked the code, you know." She, we figured out a, a compromise, and this is we 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 cracked the code, you know. And she was like, "This is the end of an era," you know, like very dramatic about it. And which was fine because that was what I've been fighting for the entire relationship. At this point, we were together like eight and a half months, and for eight and a half months, I've been basically fighting for just this. And it was just, it was huge. I told all my friends, you know, I was like, oh my God, it happened. I told them, I told my therapist, you know, like I was very proud of it, you know. And so she, she went to the retreat. It was, you know, again, the four day retreat. And I kind of, you know, I had a good time without her a little bit. I went out with friends and my dad invited me to this party that he was going to and, I I remember enjoying myself, Uh, but at one point I did get in trouble. Oh, I'm sorry, two points I got in trouble. One was that I went to that party that my dad invited me to, but I didn't tell her that I was going. Huge deal. You know, I I disobeyed the one rule that she had when she was out of the house. And so I apologized that I was sorry and told her when I was leaving. And then the other one, oh, the other one is, during that time, it was a Friday the Thirteenth, and on Friday the Thirteenth, I usually go and get cheap tattoos because um, they have really good deals. And the one that I got, it was, it was kitschy. Um, it was very small. It was uh, a heart with butt in it. You know, it was like lacy underwear or whatever. I don't know. I it was, it was very kitschy. But I had I had texted I don't know like five or six people just to be like is this you know is this trashy is this too you know whatever. But they're like no no it's cute go for it. So I did. I ended up getting it. And um, it was not okay. <laughs> I heard for two weeks how trashy it was. And at one point, I remember telling her, listen, like, I know how you feel about the tattoo, but it's on my body. You know, like, can you just calm down? I know that you don't like it. But but she. I remember she even said, because two of the people that I had asked about it were, um, were friends of ours, like, were originally her friends, but were my friends. And they said, go for it. And she's like, don't worry, I already yelled at the girls for telling you to do it. And I was like, Jesus. You know, it's just, it's all connected. You know, it's all just, we didn't have a free moment where I wasn't doing something wrong, I guess. Um, but after she got back from, from the retreat, she was very, she was quiet, she was very reserved, and very distant for about a week. And, You know, sometimes that can happen when you go to something that's fully submersive with the BDS 17 community. When you come out, there's sometimes a drop that you have afterwards, like a mental drop where you kind of have to um, get back to real life. It's kind of a harder adjustment. And so I expected that because that happened the first time, too. You know, so I was prepared for that and I was giving her her space, giving her her time. And um, in that week, I remember telling her, you know, that I was ready for her to come back. But when she was ready, she'd be ready. And, but she was also talking a lot to people from the retreat, like people that she had met or people that she got to see again, which is fine because we both do that, talk to the people that we met. But she was talking a lot. Like she was texting all the time. And um, at a couple of points, I remember telling her, like, that I was feeling very insecure because I felt like I wasn't enough. You know, I remember saying, I know we agreed to be, monogamous but I feel like at a certain point I'm not gonna be enough for you anymore. You know, in the future if we get married, if we have kids, I feel like you're gonna be so bored with us that you're gonna go have to go off to find something else because we're just not enough for you. And I I think I had this conversation with her twice in that week. And I like I would cry because I was I was telling her, you know, very real fears that I had and insecurities that I had. But she made sure that I, you know, that's not how it's going to be. You know, you really are enough for me. Um, like, she would hold me while I cried. Like, it was that much of a, of a fear for me. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I got I got a little tipsy, which is always the time that I get brave. Um, And I remember asking her, like, questioning her about the people that she talked to from, from the retreat. And it was revealed that... It wasn't completely innocent talking, and I was like, "Well, that goes against what we what we agreed upon." Like we just talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and you agreed on it. You know, like it was the most important moment of our entire relationship, and you're already feeling like like it's okay to just dismiss it. And she was very nonchalant about it, even like she was like, "Yeah, no, pretty much everything that I said that day was bullshit." And I was, I was because I had never seen that side of her, like the completely nonchalant, just blatant, yeah, I just didn't care, you know, and I just, I remember being so disillusioned, and I was, I I was also under the influence of alcohol, so I was just, there was a lot of just quiet, and then anger, you know, I yelled, and I asked questions, and basically she said, well, you asked the right questions, and I was like, but that's not how a relationship is supposed to work, you know, like, you should feel like you can tell me anything or you should feel like um, I deserve to know these things, not just because I asked the correct question. And so I was, I was fuming. And I remember going to work that next day and just fuming. And for three days I contemplated, what am I going to do? Like, (laughs) am I going to break up with her? Am I going to try with her? I had already told her that it was a deal breaker if she didn't start going to therapy with me. I was like, there's no way I could either make a therapy appointment or I'm breaking up with you right now, which she did. Um, but the next three days, I just, I, I went through every single scenario in my head. And after that third day, I decided that we were going to break up. And that was the first attempt <laughs> at breaking up with her. After, I think we were together nine months, I want to say, nine or 10, nine nine and a half. And um, I was doing it. I, I was at work, and so was she, and I was telling her, you know what, like, I think that's, it. you know, I, I don't think we're ever going to find a middle ground. You want to be poly. I want to be monogamous, and clearly this is not going to work, and she, her first round of text was dismissive. Yeah, I guess, whatever, um, and then when I wasn't changing my mind, it was anger. Um, and then she started using my ex-wife against me. And then after all that, I was still set. Um, so she came home, and I'd been sobbing all day. She'd been sobbing, I guess. And she got down on her hands and knees, and she says, You're the love of my life. You know, I'm without you, I'm never going to get married. I'm never going to have kids. Um, I want this to work. And I said, I don't think it can. But she said, what if we just find something, one thing that is, you know, somewhere in the middle? And so what she proposed was for her to have a sub, one sub, because up until then she started pushing for all kinds of subs. But she said, what if I just have one sub? I said, well, I can think about it. So we started to work on what this would mean, what the boundaries would be, what I could be comfortable with, what I wouldn't be comfortable with. Um, We started going to therapy and talking about it there. Um, And we agreed on that. So we agreed that she would have one person that would be her submissive, that at first would not be sexual because I could not handle it, um, but could eventually become. Um, And it would mostly just be a power dynamic. It wouldn't be a relationship. It wouldn't be sexual yet. It would just be the power dynamic, which plenty of people are into, you know. So it shouldn't be hard to find somebody who would be willing to do it. And she, at that point, had five people on the line. So I was like, pick one, (laughs) you know. So we, she picked the sub, we picked the agreement, and I was working on being comfortable with it. So, Every, all of our therapy sessions were basically blood baths, you know, on either one side or the other or both. We were just, basically therapy was this one place that we could just say exactly what we were thinking to each other without any repercussions. And we did. <laughs> and I remember I would start, I started becoming disillusioned after the realization that the most important uh, moment was a complete lie. And I started slowly disillusioning, um, after that, I think that's the term. Um, and then every once in a while I would have a wake up call again. And the first one happened, um, so we had a friendsgiving where all of our friends come and I made, I cooked for 12 hours and we got tables and I was so excited about, like, this is one of my dreams is to host family parties basically. And, um, I I cooked from, like, 7 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And throughout the whole time, you know, she would help chop things or she would help do this or that. And I remember, like, I remember every single dish there was something wrong with it, like, when I was cooking it. You know, don't overcook the potatoes if the mashed potatoes aren't going to turn out. Or if you use this, it's going to taste like crap. Or it was just little things here and there we had to make a last trip to Walmart for a couple of last minute things. And right before I was going, you know, I went to the bathroom and I came out and she was on her phone at the counter. And when she saw me, she turned it off real quick. And before she turned it off, you know, I saw a little bit, but she was talking to the sub, which wasn't against the rules. She could absolutely talk to the sub, you know, like that's, that's within her rights. And was just, it was weird that she had turned it off so quick. And it's, I kind of let it go for a minute and as we were getting ready, I I said, you know, I just want to make, I just have one request for tonight. If it's okay, if you could not talk to the sub, you know, you can be on your phone, that's fine, um, but this is for friends and family and I just, I would like it to be just us. And she flipped out, you know, she's like, she acted like I was telling her not to be on her phone at all, which we were also struggling with because she was on her phone all the time. But I, I told her, I was like, you can be on your phone the whole time, you know, the entire time. Just don't talk to the sub today. You know, you can let her know, hey, this is family time, or and that would be it. You know, and I know that the sub would have been fine with it, but she wasn't. And she said, well, that's not as interesting. And I said, well, that effing sucks. And I'm like, marched to the car, waited for her fuming. You know, she agreed to it, and she stopped talking to the sub. And I just, I remember just, it just didn't fit with me right. And the next day, I uh, I was gonna I said I'm gonna ask to see her phone today, you know, because it just it didn't sit right because because before she turned off her phone, I saw a heart. I was like, well, that doesn't seem quite right. And so I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask to see her phone. And right before we went to bed, you know, she accidentally left her phone in the in the bathroom. So I looked at it for the 30 seconds that I had. There was enough incriminating evidence that I felt fine asking for it because I did actually want to see it. And we got in bed, and she's like, well, if there's something on your mind. What's wrong? I was like, well, let me see your phone. And she just stopped. She's like, why? I was like, just let me see it. That's within my rights. I'm allowed to do that. Let me see your phone. And she just she just kept asking why. I was like, if you're not doing anything wrong, just prove it. You know, like, just, just prove it. It's not that hard. And she just kept denying it. (laughs) And uh, I told her, I was like, if you don't let me see your phone, I'm leaving this house tonight. Like, I'm not staying here tonight if you don't give me your phone. I was that mad. And she's like, well, I would go. I said, you would risk our entire relationship and your sub because you don't want me to see your phone because you're not doing anything wrong. So I said, tell me what you're doing wrong. She said, well, sometimes she sends me pictures. I was like, yep, that's against the rules. Anything else? He says, well, you know, we talk about our day. You know, we, we, we talk about our day. I was like, yep, that's, that's partner behavior. Anything else? He says, no, no, that's it. I was like, okay, so let me see it. He like, but I told you. You know, just struggle back and forth. And um, our therapy session before this was probably like a week before this. We talked about the difference between partner and sub, like the, the actual definition between partner and sub. And I had told her, you know, I want to be sub, not a partner. Because a partner would be someone that you lean to for emotional support. You know, somebody that is, um, like, ever-present, somebody that's important, somebody that's, you know, a, a partner. Whereas a sub, it's a power dynamic. You know, you tell them what to do and how to do it, and they prove it. Or um, they have punishments for X, Y, Z. and they, Like, there's 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 a dynamic to it which I was fine with because I didn't want blood dynamics outside of the bedroom because I've into in the 24-7. But we had had that conversation with the therapist of what the difference was. And when I actually got to see her phone, it was 100% partner behavior. You know, she was, they were talking about their days. She was calling her honey. She was, um, she called her when she was depressed in the bathtub in the other room, not talking to me, but called her. And I told her, I was like, this is exactly what the therapist told you was partner. Behavior. Like, why do you think that that's okay? She said, well, I'm not allowed to sleep with her. How else am I supposed to keep her? I said, that is not my problem. If you can't keep a stub, that doesn't make you a dumb then. Like, that's not my problem. The problem is that everything that you said you weren't going to do, you are doing. And she says, well, it's a, she said, it's emotional manipulation, Because I can't sleep with her. I was like, I don't care what you say it is. This girl, you're calling her when you're depressed. You're asking about her day. You're calling her sweetie and honey and sending her heart. I don't care what you're saying it is, but that's what it is. And the next day was attempt number two to break up with her because I was just so tired. I told her, I said, I can't keep waiting for the next thing that you don't realize is going to hurt me. And she says, just give me one more chance. I said, I gave you three, <laughs> and you still continue to hurt me. She says, just give me one more. I said, fine. I gave her one more. And, I mean, there was nothing really big that happened after that. But the weekend that I did end up breaking up with her, I just, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. Because um, I did end up meeting the sub, who was a lovely person. I have literally no ill feelings against her at all she's wonderful she does exactly what she's supposed to do and she's a great person but seeing them interact together I could tell that she that Jesse, still didn't get the point of partner versus sub and she made a show like she did but I knew like in the way that she looked at her in the way that she felt that she just wanted Polly and I just I was just exhausted by that point. I was so exhausted. And uh, the next day we went to a wedding and uh, I got sufficiently drunk. And it was a very, very, very fancy wedding. Like it was probably the fanciest event I've ever been to in my life. And I don't come from that at all. So, you know, rationally for her, she would correct the things that I did or the way that I was standing or the way that I grabbed food off of the appetizer plate. Like, it was just little things. I think I just remember just being like, I can't keep doing this. And we ended up having a huge fight that night over uh, sex, actually, which was ridiculous. But um, because for the last couple of weeks, she'd been telling me that I was being selfish, like sexually, that I was putting my needs above hers and that I was just not sensitive to to her which is pretty much exactly what she was doing, but projecting it on me. And I just remember being so fed up that the next day she told me to leave the house because I, we were at her mom's house. She told me the next morning to leave the house because she needed space. I said, that's fine. And then later that day I texted her back and I said, listen, I know you want space, but I just want to let you know, like, I think you're right. We do need space. I said, we can't do this anymore um, all I need from you is half of the break, lease fee, and, and that's all I'm going to ask from you, but I just, I can't do it anymore. And her response was not to talk about the fact that I was breaking up with her, but was to tell me that I was being selfish again and showing that I didn't tr- I didn't respect her boundaries because she asked for space. She said nothing about the breakup at that point, just that I clearly didn't respect her boundaries because I was texting her. And I just remember just being so sure that that was the right choice and um that next day we did end up breaking up breaking up our relationship um I had a therapy appointment like halfway through it and before I left for my therapy appointment she acted very nonchalant very like unfeeling you know like it was a business transaction like what are we going to do with the apartment who's going to stay where are we going to sleep all of this And I remember tearing up at one point and she said, I don't understand why you're crying. It's not like we lost anything big. I said, of course we did. We're breaking up. And it was just like, it was just a slap in the face. But, you know, I left for my appointment. I came back and she, um, that's when all of her emotions came and always for her, the first one was anger. You know, how could you do this? What is wrong with you? You know, clearly you couldn't try all of this. And then it was poor me. There's a lot of pity, like, oh, another person who left me. You're just like all the others. It was just, it was a big, long, ground-out process. And I remember I did feel bad, but I remember thinking, no, this is the right decision. And so after we broke up, we did live together for another month and a half. Um, but she was rarely home. She would come home for, like, a day or two, and then she'd leave for about six or seven. I don't know where she went. I don't really care to know where she went. Um, but for the first couple of weeks... We were pretty cordial. You know, we were very, we were nice to each other. You know, it was it was a very nice, it felt nice and wrapped up in a bow for a while. But then I told her that I was going to break the lease in two months. I was giving us two months, and then I was going to break the lease. And she freaked out because friends don't break leases. And, you know, I'm not giving her enough time. After that, she decided we were absolutely nothing to each other because friends don't break leases. And I remember being heartbroken about it because we had been so cordial and friendly and then for it to just be done because I made the agreement that in two months we would leave the house, you know, and it was just, everything was my fault and everything was just incorrectly done. And I was just so, so over it, you know, but I remember I was, I, I, I did tear up for a while. And I was crying. I like, oh, I don't understand why you're crying. And I said, they we're nothing to each other. We were something, and now we're nothing. That warrants emotion. And she's like, well, this is what you wanted. And it was just, it was all just thrown back at me. And uh, three days later, she informed me that she was not going to pay rent and that she was going to be gone by the end of the month. So when I gave her two months, she gave me 28 days to get out of my house. Because, you know, it had to end on her Her note. And uh, and I I figured it out, you know. I wasn't worried about that. I was trying to give her the time, but she just wanted to have that last dab, you know. And um, a couple of weeks later, she packed up her stuff and she said, "Well, you're never going to see or hear from me again." And um, I remember I was out drinking with one of my friends one night, or we were in, we were staying and drinking, and I had found this article. Uh, that I had saved probably halfway through a relationship that I had never opened. And it was 64 signs of emotional abuse. And I remember being, I mean, drunk off by behind with my best friend. And I remember going through the list and of those 64 signs, I remember being like, there's like 45 or 50 that I experienced regularly. And like, not just like, Oh yeah, that happened. But for each one, I would tell my friend, no, this is remember this time. Or, like, I could give you two or three stories about each of the times. And I just remember thinking, oh, yeah, that's not right. And after that, I started doing a lot of research on, you know, emotional abuse. And I found a lot on narcissistic abuse. And it's like I could have written every single article that I read. Uh, And it was just, it was kind of a a wake-up moment, you know. It was just. I have a name to this thing that I just went through and it's not just me that went through it. It's not just me that fell for it. It's something that happened to me and it was hard for me to separate that from something I let happen. But finally there was like a community, you know, and there was articles and there was stories to be told. And it was, there's a, you know, there's a vocabulary to it. And I think that, really started my healing process is realizing that I could put a name to this thing that I had just went through, you know?
1: And, and uh, so, so did you, once you started learning all of those things as part of your healing process, did you continue to see a therapist and work through these things?
0: I did. I, um, I'd actually been going to a therapist throughout the relationship um, I started seeing a, uh, a therapist um, probably about six months before I met her, actually, but or before I started dating her. Um, but it was mostly working on things that I had personally. Um, but after I finally had a name, I remember telling my therapist too. Before, <coughs> excuse me. Before doing all the research, I remember asking my therapist, "Do you think that Jesse was abusive?" And you know, as a therapist, you can't just say yes. Yeah. You know that there, you have to figure it out on your own. You know, and she's kind of like, "Well, maybe. What do you think?" And it was it was a short conversation at that point. But after I did the research, I came back and I said, "Jesse was abusive," and I was telling her about the articles and I was telling her about the things I learned. And we did get to actually work through it, and we did get to figure out, okay, where do we go from here, emotionally and situationally? Because you know, I was out of an apartment, I was out of my depth of understanding for a minute. And I did get a chance to work through it. Um, and, and, and how, the-
1: sorry, how, how do you feel about the community that you were in and the lines that were blurred? And do you feel that if you weren't, you know, in that community, um, um, or, you know, the polyamorous community, the BDSM community, those those are different, Um, that would you have been susceptible to what happened uh, uh, without that stuff?
0: I do think that I was susceptible at the point that I was at after leaving my Mm -hmm. ex-wife. But I do think, and again, I love... The teen community, and I do think that there's great things that can be done with Polly. I don't knock that at all, but I do think that that environment is a little bit more conducive to these kinds of relationships and these kinds of personalities um, because they're used for the wrong reason. Um, with Jessie, she, a lot of it is, I believe, that she in her head has no true boundaries between BDSM and real life. Like, for example, I remember having the conversation with her and saying, so if I came home one day and decided I wanted to dress up really nice and make dinner and bring you a beer on the couch, I would think, oh, I'm being a good girlfriend. You know, I'm doing good girlfriend things. But in her mind, it would be, oh, what a good sub, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with BDSM or kink. Just in her mind, I think she's enmeshed them so much that in that environment, being a narcissist, she's in a better environment to find the kinds of people that are susceptible to it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And
1: sure. I'm not, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, I guess, you know, I, I'm sure I could further probe into that community and the percentages of, sure. <laughs> of narcissistic personalities. Um and, and things along those lines. But, you know, so after you came to all these realizations and, and your healing process uh, continued, uh, w- I guess, where are you right now?
0: Well, I um, I was very fortunate, and it was not supposed to happen, but um, about halfway through my healing process, I accidentally met the love of my life. <laughs> and I think that she... One, she's a wonderful person. She's very much straight edge, um, pretty much non kink, very vanilla. But other, uh, she's very, she's went through so much in her life and has gone through so much and come out on the healthy side that she has a way of speaking when I'm kind of reverting a little bit, when I am, either feeling down on myself about what I let happen or if I'm talking about something like an instance with my ex that had happened, she is able to bring me kind of to the forefront of it with the kind of vocabulary that she has from her healing. Um, and also she has a background in psychology, which is so helpful. Um, but she has helped me a lot realize how strong I am and realized that I did go through something that is very hard to get out of, and I did it on my own. And I also, um, I realized that I am the person that I know I am from before my ex and before my ex-wife even. Like, there is a person here that I completely lost, and I started writing again, I started reading again, I listen to a lot of podcasts now, um, I'm back into the things that I realize bring me joy. I got enrolled in school again. I'm going to school for social work, actually. Um, and I'm almost done with my associates finally after the break, that so I took. And I just, I finally feel comfortable for the first time in my life. I feel like I'm at a place that the past doesn't define me anymore and that I am the main character of my story if that makes sense. And I mean, I still, I still have a little bit to go. I still get um, flashbacks every once in a while. And <clears throat> I do sometimes miss the person that I thought I knew. And it's not that I missed her being with her, but I miss knowing that person that she was, that I thought she was, rather. But I'm at probably one of the healthiest points in my life. Um, so you're, God, you're you're
1: deriving God. your self worth and self esteem from yourself, and not putting it in the hands of other people.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I'm finally relying on myself and relying on my thoughts and emotions um, to guide me where I actually want to go, rather than the codependent that used other people to kind of guide where I was leading. And, and it feels really
1: good. And, and uh, were there any like practices or things that you had to do to um, help you get there? Or just like this gradual process of slowly believing in who you are again and slowly discovering one thing by one thing like, oh, I took up writing again. That makes me feel good. I'm going to continue that. I like doing that. That is who I am. Or not that's who I am. That is something that gives me pleasure. That came from me. Um, yeah.
0: The biggest thing, the biggest things for me was just. Um investing in the things that I knew brought me joy. And also writing, even though that's something that does give me joy, writing helped me a lot. Like I started journaling, um, just kind of independently. And I also I looked up um self-guided journals. Um I found this one which is kinda it's kind of woo-woo, but it's really good. Um it's like a meditation journal. Um like little uh, exercises, poetry exercises and stuff, like things that would kind of, um, direct all that chaotic energy that I have, the chaotic, um, thoughts that I have, and kind of funnel them into this medium of writing. Because when you're writing, um, you can only write one thing at a time. And so it kind of directs your thoughts. Like if I have all of these thoughts bouncing around in my head, if I start writing, I can only focus on one at a time. And so getting it out on paper helped me a lot, and also it helped me understand how I'm feeling when I'm feeling overwhelmed. So that was really, really big for me was, was investing in my writing again and um, actually uh, using it and, and guiding it in a way that would help me um, center myself.
1: So before we end off our show, uh, is there any words of wisdom you have for everyone out there?
0: The hardest thing for me was the the, the distinction between this is something that happened to me and this is something that I let happen to me. Um, The biggest thing that I can say is you have to realize that you're not at fault for what something else someone else did to you. You're not at fault for letting it happen to you because they know exactly how to do it. And you're not alone in in that mindset, but that's the biggest thing for me that I had to kind of come out of. And that's what's going to make you the most free is taking yourself from the equation.
1: Well, Betty, I want to thank you for telling your story and sharing your story with us today. It's been uh, a pleasure Um, and I'm sorry that you went through all of this, but, you know, it sounds like you are, have done a lot of work and a lot of healing and your whole entire process that you've gone through, I think will, uh, help a lot of people. So I really appreciate you, uh, talking with me today.
0: Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to kind of express what I did go through and if it helps even one person, I mean, it's worth
1: it. And you did your job. So I thank you for that. (laughs) And uh, for everyone else out there who is listening, I hope you have a good night.